0: It's Friday, April 20th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds, our special up-to-date episode. I'm Indre Viscontis.
1: Up-to-date is our weekly recap of the major science news stories of the week. Indre, what'd you find this week?
0: So I found two stories that caught my eye. Uh, Let me tell you about the first one, and then um, maybe we'll have time for the second one later. I don't know if if you've seen, a lot of people have been sharing this story, the idea that if you actually stay up too late, if you're a night owl, You're at a greater risk of dying early. Uh, So apparently being a night owl as opposed to a morning lark makes you 10% or increases your death risk by by about 10%.
1: Okay, what if you're like an ultra night owl like me? Like, (laughs) does that rise to 15%? Well, let's dive into it. What does that mean, 10% risk of early death?
0: Yeah, so let me, in order to understand this, we kind of really need to understand the mechanics of the study. So this is a study that was published on April 12th in uh, Chronobiology International Journal, And it is part of the UK Biobank study, which is something that I like to keep track of. It's a massive, massive set of studies. Because essentially, when you have um, uh, government funded healthcare, you can store people's data and do all kinds of amazing, interesting work on it. Um, So for example, a lot, there's a lot of brain imaging studies that include, uh, you know, like hundreds of 1000s of participants. And this study is no different. So this study included about 433 Three thousand participants um, in the UK, aged uh, 38 to 73. Uh, they followed them for about six and a half years. And initially, they asked them, hey, are you like definitely a morning person or definitely a night owl? And people would sort of categorize themselves either as neither definitely any of one of them. And, I, and then I think they were excluded from the study or definitely night owl, definitely morning lark. And then they looked at how many of them died. <laughs> uh, and it turns out that uh, the people who I'd self identified as night owls were 10% more likely to die in that six and a half year period, uh, compared with people who talked about themselves as morning people.
1: All right. Now I suddenly have deep anxiety about my nighttime habits because I'm definitely a night owl. Uh, This tracks back to what Matt Walker said in that interview we did a long time ago with him about sleep, that, yeah, we should sleep eight hours. There's cognitive deficits. There's biological deficits that emerge. And you can't make that up. You just got to sleep more.
0: Yeah, and you know it's probably no surprise that his book "Why We Sleep" is like a number one bestseller in the UK. Uh, maybe in this this study is probably given that those book sales an even bigger boost. Uh, it's it's a great book, by the way. If anyone wants to read it, uh, and I'm not just saying that because he's one of my good friends. It's really good. "Why We Sleep" by Matt Walker. Um, but yeah, so the problem is is that we most of us live in a society that the rules are dictated by morning people. So you have to be up in the morning. If you could just sleep your eight hours starting at, you know, one or two in the morning, then it wouldn't be a problem necessarily. So that's really, it seems to be the the, the difficulty is that people who are night owls are not getting enough sleep chronically because they have to be up in the morning. So one solution is, well, let's just not make people get up so early in the morning if they are genetically pre-programmed to be night owls. And, you know, there's obviously genetics don't act in a vacuum. Uh, there does seem to be a genetic link between people who are more likely to be up at night versus in the morning. Although, of course, there are behavioral things that uh, come to come into play too. So if, for example, you have to function in a society that punishes you for not being up in the morning, and you find it really hard to fall asleep before midnight, then what you need to do is make sure that your sleep hygiene is really good. So for example, avoid bright lights in the evening, uh, expose yourself to bright light in the morning, all the things that we hear about over and over and over again and find it often very hard to implement. Like, for example, do not sleep with your phone next to you. Do not you know, scroll through your email just before going to bed.
1: I believe that genetic condition you're talking about where people stay up late is called being a teenager. All those sleep hygiene things you mentioned are things I don't do. I sleep with my phone next to my, my bed. I usually go to bed really late. I'm up early because I have a child. And so he wakes up early. Uh, So there's a whole slew of conditions that I'm just violating. Maybe it's time to, for me to listen to the science for once.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you want to live to see your child get old. <laughs> you oh, come on. To, uh... Not fair. You're not playing fair.
1: All right. I, but, okay. I have a double story for you this week. We have a couple amazing space launches happening, and I'm a huge space launch nerd. Uh, First up, hopefully by the time you're listening to this, the TESS Space Telescope has launched. And that is a planet hunter. It is looking for the transit of planets in front of stars, just like the Kepler telescope. The big difference between TESS and the Kepler telescope is that it has these cameras that have huge field of view. So each camera on it, and there are four cameras on it, look at a 24 degree by a 24 degree section of space for 28 days at a time. That may not sound like a lot at first glance, but it's a huge swath of space. And over its two year lifetime, it's actually going to be able to map with these four cameras the entire night sky. Now, it has some limitations on some of the instrumentation on board, so it's only going to be able to look for certain types of transits of stars. But this huge data set is going to help us direct ground-based telescopes and future space-based telescopes, like the James Webb Telescope, to target areas to look at in more detail to identify planets. It should also give us some indication of density and potentially the atmospheric makeup of some of these planets. Current estimates that I've seen point at the Milky Way having around 2 billion planets in it, and that number fluctuates wildly. So I'm really excited about what this uh, telescope is going to bring to bear in the next couple years. The so, are we like is-
0: expecting, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, are we like expecting this to be kind of definitive that like this is like, you know, the final mapping of the night sky that we can see from Earth, or is this still just another effort to just provide a little bit more clarity?
1: Uh, No, I'm not sure there will ever be such a thing called the final mapping of the night sky. But it does give us a more granular picture. I mean, all of these telescopes are increasing resolution in different ways. Like the James Webb is expanding the light spectrum that we're seeing by being able to see in the infrared. This is expanding the field of view that Kepler took on. All of that will start to add up to a greater and greater picture of the night sky. But by no means is this giving us a complete picture.
0: All right, what's the second one?
1: Second one is NASA is launching a new instrument to Mars. It's called InSight. It's launching in early May. And this instrument's not a rover. Think more like Opportunity with, like, how it had uh, solar shields that sort of unfurled. And it's going to stay in one spot, and it has two main instruments on it. First is a drill. It's going to drill down about 18 to 20 meters into the Martian surface and measure the temperature at different depths. And that should give us the ability to extrapolate the temperature gradient through the planet's core. And by doing so, we will know how much leftover heat – is inside of Mars. And that's important for calculations in terms of what the composition of Mars is to what did Mars look like at different ages throughout its past, which is important for us to understand water on Mars. Uh, The second instrument is a seismometer. And they're looking for, and this is my favorite science term of the week, mars quakes because it's on Mars. You can't call it earthquakes. And that's, again, to understand the composition of the upper crust of mars in a more detailed way what's interesting about the launch as well is that most of these launches that are going to mars happen out of florida because you want to launch out of florida in case there's an accident it crashes over the atlantic ocean this one is actually launching from california which they usually use for polar or- orbits but because this instrument is so light they don't need like the gravity assist of the earth turning to sort of propel it closer to the Mars and the way the orbits align. It also has this really weird elliptical orbit that almost puts it out close to the moon and then hugs back close to Earth in this sort of strange orbit. The New York Times did this great visualization of what the orbit looks like and all the instruments on board. And lastly, about the instrument, it's hilarious because they are so worried about uh, planetary protection, contaminating Mars with our germs. The steps they're going to keep this instrument clean are fascinating. And for the first time ever, they allowed media into the clean room where this is getting packaged up for the for the launch. And the steps they took in the media descriptions of it are, are quite entertaining, I'll just say.
0: So are you going to go watch it happen?
1: Uh, I'm not able to go watch it happen, but I, I will watch the the webcast of it. The test telescope is actually launching uh, aboard a, a Falcon 9 rocket, so we'll get that awesome SpaceX webcast. Um, the Insight is going on a on a NASA vehicle.
0: Okay, well, I have one tiny little story left uh, that kind of made me smile, uh, which is about finding new life for uh, male erectile dysfunction drugs. So <laughs> Did, you know, your <laughs> is
1: that a need? Do we need more <laughs> life for those drugs?
0: Uh, I mean I guess people think that you know they're, they' the, the they can still squeeze a little bit more uh, out of those drugs I mean I certainly know my spam box is full of advertisements for it uh, but apparently there's a, a potentially uh, much greater use uh, for these drugs than we know of um, so there's a project called redo uh, repurposing drugs in oncology and the idea is that look we've got these really expensive cancer drugs but they don't always work very well for reasons that you know are a little bit baffling like for example they can't Across the blood-brain barrier easily, um, and so that seems like a pretty, you know, it's a big problem, but you know, one that we've solved with other drugs. So one of the ideas is to use these uh, phosphodiesterase five inhibitors, like Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, uh, to help these drugs get at their targets. So um, I think it's really interesting to take a very cheap drug and use it as the kind of portal through which you can make these very expensive drugs uh, work. And so, so that's one of the the, the uses is, is to actually You know, these drugs make the blood-brain barrier more permeable. uh, So that might help people uh, get drugs to sites in the brain where there are tumors uh, that can then help fight the tumors. Uh, But there seem to be a a whole bunch of these, you know, different potential uses for these drugs. And so, um, you know, it might not just be new life uh, for your sex life. It might be new life for uh, your entire life.
1: I don't mean to be cynical, but... Uh, How much of this is just about money? Because when you use uh, drugs that are already approved by the FDA, you don't have to resubmit them for approval and go through that expensive process again.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that I think it's more about getting the expensive drugs onto the market so that patients can benefit from that. You know, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to say, you know, talk about the optimistic side of it, which is, look, you know, these a lot of these cancers are very rare. They're very hard to treat. And so you're not going to be able to generate, you know, you know, you don't you want to get them out as fast as possible and as cheaply as possible because your market isn't huge. Uh, So if you can repurpose a cheap, low toxicity drug uh, to make that happen, that it just seems to benefit everyone. And so, um, you know, that's that's the idea is like it's like, you know, as as medicine becomes much more personalized, especially in cancer, you know, as we use genetic screenings to really figure out an individualized treatment, you know, becomes more and more important to be able to, you know, get those drugs to people in ways that are cost effective.
1: Well, on that optimistic note, that wraps it up for Up to Date this week thank you for listening in if you have new stories that you want us to cover please send them to contact at inquiring.show or tweet at us on twitter or follow us on facebook we're always looking for more suggestions you can always support the show on patreon.com inquiringminds we just released an ad-free version of our regular podcast for patrons at the five dollar level and up
0: And as usual, our long-form episodes are coming out on Mondays. Uh, So next week, I'll be interviewing Ken Miller, who's a biologist, who's going to tell us what he thinks about this whole debate about whether or not we as human beings have free will. So hope to catch you then. And if not, see you next week.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me.